No, Superman Forever Radio, the weekly podcast devoted to Superman. Welcome to Superman Forever Radio. I'm your mild-mannered host, J. David Weeder. I'm happy you were able to join us here on Superman Forever Radio, where we kind of look at Superman through all ages and all mediums, but we're kind of taking this focus on the modern Superman, beginning with Infinite Crisis in 2006. And that kind of sets us up for the big announcement I talked about on Facebook. Before I do that, I do want to apologize for this episode being late. This will be the last late episode our last unplanned late episode, barring any genuine emergency. Uh, I was the move uh, from house to house took a little bit longer than I thought, really took up a lot of time. So I didn't get that episode out in time. And I do apologize for that. This will be the last time. Uh, and that kind of ties also ties into the, my announcement. Uh, the first announcement is really big as far as this show is concerned. I do have one other announcement that I'll get to after that. But let's go ahead and what happened this week to kind of inspire this this what's about what I'm about to announce was I had gone into a comic shop about two weeks ago and mentioned the show and and the guy that worked there had downloaded it, listened to it, and when I went back to visit him, he's like, You have this odd format that half the episode is this, half the episode is that. Because half of it you really do cover all eight all eras, etc. And then half of it you're really focused on this post infinite crisis Superman. Why not split the show in half? Why not do two episodes? Because eventually, you know, I'm going to catch up to the books that are on the shelves now. And then what? Then the format will change. So I thought about it. I'm like, is that more work? A little bit, yes and no. What will happen is on Sundays, the episodes will continue with the topic, Superman the Animated Series. I'm going to be able to expand that a little bit because I'll be able to spend a little bit more time on the topic. Because usually with an episode, I'm trying to cut it into roughly an hour, give or take. Not that I have to, but that's kind of where I want to have the episodes uh, lengthwise. And then on Thursdays, there will be an episode that we do continue the post-Infinite Crisis Superman issue by issue, month by month. So that way, once we do catch up to the the books, all I have to do is drop that second episode. And uh, also, on another front, the news. Uh, since, you know, I'm doing the show once a week, I'm uh, usually the news is old by the time I get to it. There are rare occasions where I uh, happen to stumble upon something. I'm going to do smaller five-minute episodes, which will probably be on a different feed. I'm going to confirm that next week. But that way it won't get crowded. If you're a subscriber, you'll still get the two episodes. That'll be roughly about 45 minutes each. So they'll be about roughly what we're doing now. It's just going to be two of them. And that'll allow me to focus a little bit further and do kind of what I did with the Action Comics handle last week where I can branch off and really get into other topics, smaller topics, kind of give me some breathing room. Plus, as far as my recording and production schedule, it will alleviate some of the scheduling problems I've had. And of course, right now, as I mentioned, once I get to the end of March, a lot of that is gone. The move is over. Uh, This writing project I've been on will be pretty much on hold for about three months. So I can bring the podcast and the site back up to sort of a larger priority status. So we're actually at a good time, and I think it's going to be really exciting. And I do want to say I'm going to do this on a trial basis. If you guys really email me and say, this just really sucks, go back to what you were doing, then yeah, we will do that. But I want to give it at least a trial basis. So give me your feedback once we start this. 
And the current uh, schedule, what I'm looking at is next Sunday would be the first full topic episode with the following Thursday being the first review only episode. Following Sunday, the news uh, bits will start popping up. So basically, you're going to get Superman Forever Radio two times a week and a Superman Forever Radio news break as it happens. Not necessarily every day, but anytime there's something relevant. So that way, the news that I'm putting out there is fresh. And also, I do want to note that it, as far as the Superman Podcast Network, one thing I'm going to say is the two episodes will appear on there, but the smaller news breaks will not because I think that's disrespectful and kind of obnoxious to to post all that you know that often because it could be i mean we're heading into some really big production information with the superman movie that could that could end up becoming daily for quite some time and i don't want to take up that much space that's just not appropriate so that will be available on supermanforever.com what i'll probably do and i'll give you the detail some of the details later uh, next week and uh, next sunday as you know as i work them out is uh, put links on the show notes so you can go to those individual episodes or just edit those new stories into the two episodes. So if you're subscribed now, it would be the exact same thing. You would just be getting two episodes a week with a little bit more focus, giving me some room to really expand and do some topic work. And uh, as far as format changes, as far as the review section, I do want to add some creator spotlights and really talk about them some more. As far as the topics, I want to be able to broaden that and really branch off into some smaller topics and really go a little bit further with what I've got. Because right now the podcast is cycling up. It's going to be my one of my primary focuses um, as far as creative projects. So this is going to be a good time. And if, if you've uh, kind of dropped off and you're just coming back, this is a perfect time. This is a perfect jumping on point. So let other Superman fans know. And as far as the other announcement... I mentioned the Superman Podcast Network. We now have a domain name. You can now go directly to www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com and it'll pull it up right then and there. So that should make it a little bit easier to tell your friends, tell other Superman fans who may not be aware of it, and uh, help them find my, this podcast as well as many other good, great podcasts devoted to Superman, like From Crisis to Crisis, uh, Superman in the Bronze Age, Golden Age Superman, Thrilling Adventures of Superman, Superman Video Podcast, several others, um, Superman Fan Podcast. And uh, yeah, just direct them over there. It's a, it's a great site. Michael Bailey was kind enough to set that up for us. So I do want to thank him once again. I'm, I'm very honored to be a part of the podcast network. Anyway, that's enough of me prattling on. Let's go ahead and get on with the episode. What we're going to do is uh, I'm going to go ahead and go jump right to Superman the Animated Series. We're going to talk about that right after this promo for another great podcast. The Superman Fan Podcast is turning over a new leaf for 2011. With the growth of Superman Podcasts in 2010 covering the Golden Age of Superman, the Bronze Age Superman, the post-crisis Superman, as well as current Superman stories... I noticed that there was not a podcast which covered the Silver Age of Superman stories. And since I began reading comic books in the early to mid-1960s, right in the middle of the Silver Age, I decided it would be a perfect opportunity for me to cover the Silver Age of Superman stories. One week I will cover the Superman family of titles, Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, World's Finest Comics, and eventually Superman's girlfriend Lois Lane. 
The next week, I will cover the Man of Steel's titles of Superman and Action Comics, as well as the Supergirl stories. And I will alternate episodes in this fashion through 1970, when Mark Weisinger retired. The home website is at supermanfanpodcast.mypodcast.com, and expanded show notes are at supermanfanpodcast.blogspot.com. Your emails are welcome at supermanfanpodcast at gmail.com, and I look forward to reading them. The Superman Fan Podcast is a member of the Superman Podcast Network, which you can find at www.fortressofbailey2.com slash supermanpodcastnetwork, where you can find all of the podcasts covering every era of the Man of Steel. Episodes are also available on iTunes. So join me each week as we fly through the time barrier and journey through the Silver Age adventures of Superman. And this week we're looking at Superman the Animated Series Episode 4, entitled Fun and Games. Written by Robert Insker and Marty Eisenberg. Directed by Kazuhide Tamanaga. Music by Christopher Carter. This episode, of course, stars Tim Daly as Clark Kent Superman. Dana Delaney as Lois Lane. David Kaufman as Jimmy Olsen. And with special guests Bud Court as Toy Man. And Bruce Weitz as Bruno Manharm. And the episode originally aired on September 7th, 1996. The episode opens with an armored car being pursued by police vehicles. A masked thug fires at the police car with a machine gun, pushing it off the road. More police cars try to pursue, but a smoke grenade causes them to smash into one another, and the armored car continues its getaway. Superman swoops in, and listening from a ledge, hears one of the police officers calling it in, telling the dispatch that they lost the armored vehicle at 3rd and Schuster, of course, named after Superman co-creator Joe Schuster. And the thugs celebrate back at their garage, having bested the cops and gotten away with their as yet undisclosed loot, but it's actually money. And then a creepy voice calls out, Hello, boys. A small arm is seen from the shadow, which reveals itself to be a doll with a perpetually smiling face throwing a ball rhythmically into the air. And the doll tells the group that he has a message for their boss, Mr. Mannheim. He tells them that the toy man is tired of his games and then drops the ball on the ground. And the ball continues to bounce faster and faster and higher and higher as the thugs try to chase the toy man. The ball gathers enough speed and bounces haphazardly through the garage, turning it into a dangerous projectile, smashing walls and pipes as well as a couple of thugs. And they all flee back to their armored car, and the ball picks up more and more speed to the point that the solid steel walls of the armored car begin to buckle with its impact. Superman, flying through the sky, uses his super hearing to hear pick up the thugs' panicked voices and swoops into the garage where the ball pelts him a few times before he manages to catch the ball and crush it. And just as he thinks they are safe, just as the thugs think they are safe, pardon me, Superman lifts the armored car into the air with them inside and drops into the police station where Jimmy and Lois are covering the story. And one of the thugs is pulled from the vehicle talking about the toy man and to tell Bruno. Lois, of course, smells a story and begins to talk to one of the thugs, known as Spider, about the toy man, which Spider evades and tells her he's an independent agent, not tied to a boss. And Lois tells Jimmy that she is thinking about a picnic in the park. At the park, Bruno Mannheim is practicing his dedication speech. 
It just happens to be Mannheim Park, trying to repair his image. And Clark is already there watching Mannheim on assignment when Lois and Jimmy show up. And Lois goes right for Bruno Mannheim and begins to grill him about the armored car heist. Mr. Mannheim, Lois Lane, Daily Planet. Any comments on this morning's armored car hijacking? Why would I have a comment? I'm a legitimate businessman. As Lois continues to question Mannheim, Clark hears the buzzing of toy planes which whirl around the park. And the planes actually pop real guns out of the top and start open fire on Bruno and Lois. Clark leaps forward and saves Mannheim as the planes just wreck havoc. Mannheim tries to run off and Lois stops Clark from chasing him. But the planes actually pursue him and continue to fire on Bruno, who ends up seeking refuge in a mushroom-themed playground equipment where he gets stuck. The planes actually make a big circle back heading right for Bruno, but Clark uses his heat vision to take them out, saving the day. And back at the Daily Planet, Lois rubs the story of the armored car attack and the attack on Mannheim into Clark's face and includes a profile of the toy man by a noted psychologist. Like the shrink says, an emotionally stunted, amoral narcissist with paranoid delusions. Desperately seeking external validation through antisocial behavior. The scene switches where Bruno Mannheim is on a boat yelling at some of his henchmen about being made a fool of when a giant rubber ducky rises from the depths. Bruno tells his men to shoot the thing, but the ducky begins to tear the boat apart, sinking it and sending Mannheim into the water where he swims ashore. The ducky is about to eat Mannheim when Superman shows up and teaches it a lesson with his fists, but it retaliates by shooting missiles at the Man of Steel. Mannheim, of course, tries to run away, but runs right into the toy man himself with a giant bubble wand, except these bubbles explode into knockout gas, taking Mannheim out. Meanwhile, Superman continues to fight the ducky, knocking it into the water where it explodes. Superman goes to look for Mannheim, but finds him missing. Back at her apartment, Lois answers her doorbell to find a package at her feet. Instead of flowers, it is a doll clad called Princess Nighty Night. Hello, I'm Princess Nighty Night. And the doll shoots gas that knocks Lois out. Lois wakes up in a giant dollhouse with the toy man's voice taunting her. He asks if she can come out and play. Back at the Daily Planet, Clark works away at the, into the night, and Jimmy tells Clark he can actually cross-reference, cross-index the names Mannheim and Toy Man to continue his research. Speaking of Toy Man, he sits down to a nice meal with Lois in the giant Barbie pastel dream house, and Toy Man explains that Lois has been writing lies about him, as Clark and Jimmy manage to pull up a story about a toy maker sentenced to prison. This is intercut with Toy Man telling the story of a kindly man who loved nothing more than making toys with a pop-up book as a prop. And the story continues as Bruno Mannheim funded the toy maker, Winslow Shots, Toy Factory, and used it as a front for a numbers racket, which Winslow took the fall for as they couldn't pin anything on Mannheim. And Clark deduces that Shot is the toy man, but Jimmy explains that Shot died in prison, but he had a son who grew up in foster homes without his father. And Superman takes off in what kind of looks like some stock footage, actually, from the Daily Planet. And Toy Man shows Blois Bruno Mannheim, who is strung up like a marionette in prison garb. And Toy Man blindfolds Mannheim and puts him in front of a firing squad of toy soldiers. And Lois topples the toy soldiers before they are able to execute Mannheim, and Toy Man just loses it over Lois breaking his toys. Before Toy Man can hurt Lois, Superman whisks in and stops him, only to have a green goop called Dopey Doe thrown at him, which is actually a substance that continually expands when it comes in contact with skin. 
and the goop begins to overcome Superman, who whirls around in a super speed to fling it off, blob by blob. In the chaos of Superman's spin, Toy Man slips away and grabs a remote control that drops thousands of toy bombs, wind-up bombs, into the room, which, of course, are not harmless. So Superman scoops up Lois and Mannheim and whisks them off to safety, narrowly escaping the explosion. After the excitement, Lois tells Clark that even though Toy Man was a sicko, she feels sorry for him. And a police officer tells the trio they didn't find a body. However, he holds up the Toy Man's cracked mask. And the episode ends. Now this episode introduced a couple of notable characters. The first, obviously, being the animated version of Toy Man. And Toy Man in this version is pretty different from the striped suit and long blonde hair that we knew with Winslow's shot. Using the head of a doll really amped up the creepy factor and created a menace out of Toy Man, almost like a horror movie. We also saw his the origin interlaced with Bruno Mannheim, who will also be a very important character in his own right. And I think the rubber ducky fight may have been the standout sequence of the episode with their perpetually moving projectile of the, with the rubber ball really coming up close behind that as well. And this was actually the first episode of the series that I ever saw. And it left a very sharp impression on me, and I, it made me fall in love with the series immediately. And the voice work by the lead actors were great as always, and Bruno Mannheim seemed to have a strong anime feel to his character design, backed by the strong characterization of Bruce White's voice. We even got to see Clark Kent do some investigative journalism in order to solve the crime. However, when Lois wakes up in the doll suit and doesn't make a sharp remark, something is off. She's pretty accepting of the entire predicament of being abducted, actually, until the toy soldiers take aim at Mannheim. She doesn't do anything, then that that's not Lois. There should have been at least one clever escape attempt in there somewhere. I know time maybe not have allowed it, but that's that what kind of fits in Lois's profile. And the animation seemed a little off, though. I mentioned the stock footage of Superman flying away from the Daily Planet. I don't remember that specific sequence being reused but i'm gonna watch for it now and in terms of superman his size kept fluctuating from scene to scene he kept gaining not weight but broadness and if you look at the background characters they have no detail they're blank faces with oversized mouths just slapped on there and it's more noticeable when the armored truck mounts the curb in the first scene but all in all this episode was uh, it has a sentimental place in my heart and plants some seeds that will play out later Plus, it gives us a toy man that will haunt your dreams. So this episode gets 3.5 S-Shields out of 5. You are cordially invited to attend a podcast that observes the unfolding events of history. Come with me and observe the birth and growth of a legend. From the pages of a 10-cent pulp comic book to the newspapers, radio program adventures, theatrical films, and more. Witness the dawn of the superhero. Golden Age Superman. Available on iTunes and at goldenagesuperman.libson.com. Every legend has a beginning. 
And now it's time for us to continue our journey through the post-Infinite Crisis Superman books, or the New Earth era, as I call it. And at this point, we are actually up at March 2007, which will bring us to Action Comics number 847, which is Intermezzo, written by Dwayne McDuffie, art and colors by Rinaldo Guedes, lettered by Travis Lanham, edited by Nachi Castro and Matt Idelson. And you wouldn't expect this issue, I mean, you would actually expect this issue to pick up right where Action Comics 846 left off with a full-on Kryptonian invasion, Superman trapped in the Phantom Zone by General Zod. Instead, we open at the Kent farm, with Jonathan Kent trying to work the new coffee maker in the middle of the night. Now Martha catches him and reminds him that his doctor told him to give up caffeine and he hasn't had a cup of coffee in four years due to his blood pressure. Jonathan snaps at her, telling her it may be the end of the world, he might as well have a cup. Martha gets upset and begins to cry as Pa goes on to say he might as well have some prime rib and ice cream too. And Jonathan realizes that he's upset his wife and he begins to comfort her and explaining that he's just stressed over Clark being missing and the invasion of the Phantom Zone criminals. And he consoles her by telling her that Clark has been missing before and has still been able to make take care of himself. And Jonathan slips and mentions a story that he really wasn't supposed to talk about. As he promised Clark, and Martha allows Jonathan a hot cup, a cup of hot chocolate, and he breaks down and tells her the story. And it happened the previous fall when Jonathan and Clark were supposed to be ice fishing. Clark tells Pa as they set out to the other, on their trip that he feels bad about lying to Martha, as he should. And Pa and Clark took take the truck to the lake, and Clark then flew them both, uh, with Jonathan bundled up to the Fortress of Solitude. After showing his father around the, the fortress a little bit, Clark pulls out a sunstone and activates it. And he throws it to the ground and it forms a Kryptonian ship. And Clark tells Jonathan to get in, which Pa is hesitant to, hesitant to do at first. And Clark reminds him that, hey, you asked me to take you into space. So Jonathan boards the ship. And Clark lifts the ship into space, as it's a bad idea, apparently, to use uh, the ship's star drive in Earth's atmosphere. And once safely into space, as Clark boards the ship, he activates the star drive, and he sends the two of them into deep space. And once at the destination, the Ophanachus, I'm pretty certain I'm saying that wrong, could be Ophanachus. Well, Clark makes the ship transparent, wherever they are, and that way they can get a good look at the Kepler supernova. And the men scan the frequencies of the area, which is habited by multiple species. As they do, a mayday comes across, and it appears a Sun Eater is attacking a local armada. Clark immediately puts up the ship's defenses and plots a course for the source of the distress call. And when they get there, Jonathan asks Clark if he knows how to beat a Sun Eater, and Clark admits that the last time he went up against one, he had a lot of help, and still only got by on luck. And as Clark flies off to face the Sun Eater, he tells the ship to return his father if he doesn't come back in three hours. And Superman comes across the ship that the one ship left of the fleet, which is badly damaged and manned by an alien who is trying to use the debris field as cover, but is found by the Sun Eater, which begins to destroy the alien ship even further. And Superman blocks the Sun Eater's beams, protecting the ship. And the alien actually explains that his payload is an entropy bomb, which will destroy the Sun Eater. So Superman takes the bomb and flies at the creature, being hit time and time again by red sun radiation. And from the ship, Pa is able to see everything happening as Clark 
takes blast after blast and keeps on charging despite the pain and weakness. And Clark gets to the center with his powers diminishing and heaves the bomb into the Sun Eater. When the bomb detonates, it sends an electromagnetic shockwave at Superman, knocking him back and then expanding with a ball of radiation, which would pretty much incinerate Clark if it touched him. And Superman races to outrun the radiation and finds that Jonathan has managed to use the ship's voice commands to navigate to Clark and effectively rescues him. And once Superman gets into the ship, Pa gives him a big hug. Aww. And the alien races thank Superman over and over again, and Jonathan and Clark head for home with some male bonding on the way. And once back to Earth, Clark caught some fish and stocked Jonathan up, so and they drove back home. And Jonathan explains that the moral of the story is never underestimate their son under any odds. And Jonathan hugs Martha and or Martha hugs Jonathan, pardon me, and tells him that that's for lying to her when she needs it. And the two go back upstairs to bed as we get one final shot of the shattered Phantom Zone mirror with Superman trapped inside. Okay, let's let's start this breakdown with three obvious problems. One, this is not the point in the last Sun story to take a break and tell this little vignette. Action Comics eight number number eight forty six left us with a heck of a cliffhanger, and the only reason we have this issue is basically because Andy Kubert was running behind on his art duties. Second, Jonathan Kent being stressed is one thing; snapping at Martha is another. This is out of character. It's completely out of character for Jonathan, and it detracts from his influence over Clark as the stalwart, level-headed patriarch. I'm not saying Jonathan wouldn't be flawed or lose his cool. I'm saying he wouldn't do it in front of Martha or much less take it out on her. And additionally, the stress we're seeing here isn't completely founded. In the New Earth era, people actually remember both Crisis on Infinite Earth and Infinite Crisis. And they've seen the end of the world twice. And although Kryptonians invading would certainly be a freakout, don't get me wrong, Jonathan has seen his son literally die. And this would not elicit such a dramatic response. And I will give the caveat that the the stress we're seeing here, as well as the mention of his blood pressure, both add to the character's eventual complication down the line. But it makes more sense if Jonathan bottles the stress and puts on a brave face for his wife. Now the third point, adding to the last note, Jonathan blatantly lying to Martha in tandem with Clark is not acceptable. Superman doesn't lie to his parents, especially not at the request of another. Clark may lie to the general public about his secret identity in order to protect his family and himself, but Ma and Pa Kent are one-third of his sanctuary along with Lois, which is a group of people he can actually be himself around. He has no need to lie. It's just out of character and, and all done to set up what is otherwise a pretty good story. It's just the story suffers from some lousy timing on the, on the part of editorial. And I, then Jonathan pulls a 180 and begins to tell Martha things will be okay and not to underestimate Clark. That that doesn't even make sense. He was the one that was just stressed a few minutes ago. I know I am sound like I'm pulling this story apart, but we all know that Dwayne McDuffie was a great writer and he was better than this setup. Now once you get past that major problem, the rest of the story is pretty great. Page 8 has Clark showing Jonathan around the fortress, which is actually pretty charming, and Clark activating the Sunstone kind of leaves me with the question on how exactly Kryptonian technology works. Because all he seems to do is hold it and it forms a ship. Does it read his thoughts? Or is that a particular sunstone pre-programmed with the schematics for the ship? 
dead, I'm not sure. And, and speaking of the ship, it looks great on page 11. I like the sleek design, and even better is Jonathan getting cold feet about going into space. However, Clark flies the ship into the atmosphere and then re-enters the ship. Now, I assume there's an airlock, but the design of the ship and the size of the ship makes that pretty tricky. So, that, I mean, I guess that's that's just a semantic. Now, also, the ship picks up on Clark's sub-vocalizations and uses harmonics to broadcast them, but in an atmosphere where there's no oxygen, would Clark even be able to make a sound to pick up on? I mean, that, once again, that's that may be me being nitpicky, admittedly, but... The harmonics make for, you know, some good pseudoscience, so it's easy to let it pass. Now, the star drive effect on page 15 looks awesome. It's a unique tape on a, a hyperspace effect. It's ultimately like a wire frame lit up with clusters of light within it. It's kind of like some modern art. And on page 16, with the walls transparent, the idea of Clark being able to look on the supernova while essentially standing in space is pretty magical. It makes me think of the most recent season of Doctor Who with Amy Pond experiencing the wonder of space for the first time. And this is a Kansas farmer who used to look up at the stars at night and dream of visiting them. Now he stands among them next to one of the most powerful beings in the universe who happens to be his own son. And the action runs quick in the second half of the book. On page 21, we see the alien who's trying to deliver the entropy bomb to the Sun Eater. And he looks like a combination of the James Earl Jones character from Enemy Mine... Uh, a little bit of the Navi from Avatar, and Kiati Mundi from Star Wars. And the action may move too quickly, though, as Superman takes care of the Sun Eater in two and a half pages. So by page 25, the only thing left is the residual effects of the creature's destruction that Superman's dealing with. And that brings us to a big point. Did Superman just kill? I know it's a Sun Eater, but just a few issues back... When dealing with the auctioneer, he refused to kill the sentient computer ops because it represented a life form. And now Superman callously destroys another life form and jumps in to do it without even blinking? That's another area where the characterization is off, and I, I wish we knew what race gave Superman the blue crystal from page 28 and what it represents, but we never see them or the crystal they reward Superman with again. As much as I like the long Paul, talk Paul and Clark have on the way home, it doesn't match the time frame that it took for them to get to the destination. The trip to the supernova was almost instantaneous, but this shows a long trek back, hours and hours. And finally, on page 29, Martha not only forgives Jonathan for blatantly lying to her, but pretty much thanks him for it. I'm sorry, but if I lied to my wife about where I'd been, I think I would be sleeping on the couch for a few nights, but Martha thanks Jonathan... This bothers me a lot. And overall, I mean, the story suffers from out-of-character moments, shoehorned in for little effect. And while the story's strong point is the relationship between Jonathan and Clark on this personal and, and special adventure, that gets lost in the mire of Jonathan snapping at Martha, lying to her, and then Clark killing a Sun Eater. However, it is good to see Clark in a deep space adventure, meeting strange aliens and getting accolades for saving trillions of people. As far as the cover, the art shines pretty well all over. Uh, Renato, uh, the cover looks fantastic. Renato Guedes has a unique style, and it fits the story really seamlessly. And the cover shows Superman soaring above the city among the clouds. It's a gorgeous image, complemented well by Guedes' colors and the sharp line work. Just imagine John Bogdanov combined with the more fluid art of Matt Wagner on Trinity. 
But I think the colors really make this issue throughout. It's almost like an animation cell. And Guedes does some really great work on Clark's facial expressions. The reflective quality of the ship Clark makes out of the sunstone, it's actually very striking. The only major flaw is that Jonathan's weight seems to fluctuate from page to page and panel to panel, but it's actually forgivable because the facial expressions really convey what Jonathan is going through. And it really sells the emotional core of the story, which helps leverage the characterization flaws a little. So overall, this could have been a could have been more than a simple fill-in issue, but I mean the art is fabulous and fits into the interlude and makes the segue from Last Sun to this emotional reaction to what we saw at the end of 846 a little bit easier. But Jonathan's brashness, lying to Martha, and Superman killing the Sun Eater without even lamenting that it may have been his only course or any other acknowledgement was it was just a huge blast in the story. Oddly enough, McDuffie was one of the one who omitted the time travel aspect from the All-Star Superman movie and essentially had Superman kill a Sun Eater in that movie. And as I said, uh, McDuffie was a huge, huge talent. He was He's a better writer than what we see here, and that may be the biggest flaw of the entire issue, the fact that we know how good McDuffie was. So overall, this story gets two stars out of five. And let's not miss anything. Let's a beat here. We're going to move on to Superman number 660, which is The Art of the Prank, written by Kurt Busiek, with guest artists Mike Manley and Brett Blevins. It's colored by Lee Lowridge, lettered by Rob Lay, and edited by Nachi Costa and Matt Idelson. In Metropolis, a man walks into Uncle Ole's surefire joke shop and tells the clerk he has business with his uncle. The man is asked for a password, but he realizes he is standing on a trap door and takes a quick leap back before giving the password. Splung! After which he falls through a hidden trap door he unknowingly hopped on when getting off the other one. And this sets up off a, off a bell, which awakens none other than Oswald Loomis, the prankster, who gets out of bed greets to greet his guests, who is merely a messenger for a new criminal calling himself Nitro-G, who is able to produce and throw nitroglycerin, which he uses to blow up the car of one of prankster's female henchmen, a uh, henchwoman, uh, just call her an assistant. And if you will remember, Lex Luthor used the prankster as a distraction back in Superman number 651 during the Up, Up, and Away storyline. And now Loomis has turned that into a profitable business. Essentially, he's a distraction for hire, and Nitro-G needs Loomis to distract Superman while he robs a bank. So the prankster takes the job, even the even gives Nitro-G a 10% discount since the job involves pranking Superman. And prankster wastes no time getting to work on his pranks, which include using banana peels to cause an entire fleet of marathon runners to slip and fall. And when the police accost Loomis, floating in his clear bubble, he blasts them with a water shot from a, a pair of squirting flowers. And as planned, Superman shows up to confront the prankster and finds that the bubble's exterior is electrified. And the water that was shot out of the giant daisies, it was actually glue, which the pol Metropolis police are now coated with. And back home later, the prankster watches the news report of his own escape from Superman as well as Nitro-G's successful bank heist. The next day brings another visitor to the prankster's lair, and Nitro-G has returned with a new wrinkle. Nitro-G wants Loomis to supply him with guns that shoot the glue that the prankster used on the cops. And prankster tells Nitro-G he's a performer, not an armorer, and declines. And this sets Nitro-G off, and Loomis reconsiders under, under duress. So the following Friday, fake money drops down from the sky at the Daily Planet building, 
each bill with a note to lead Superman on a wild goose chase in Mount Royal. And Nitro G pulls another bank job in Baker Line, only to find two of his thugs taken out by giant cuckoo clocks with oversized fists. And Prankster himself shows up at the bank, causing Nitro G to fire up his powers, which doesn't work well when the sprinkler system is set off, because instead of water, it's actually chemicals that absorb nitroglycerin, which puts out Nitro G's flames, coats him in it, almost looking like Clayface. And Oswald actually puts a cherry bomb into the mixture, turning Nitro G into basically a human stick of dynamite. So Superman sweeps in and tries to put out the fuse, which ends up causing the chain reaction anyway, as the prankster tries to warn him about that. So Superman peels the goop off Nitro G as he flies him through the city, detonating the substance in, in midair in small bursts, and delivers Nitro G to the police station in his underwear, which is exactly what Oswald was planning. And the prankster slips away under the guise of a hologram with his prank complete. And the issue wraps up with Prankster explaining that Superman equals free advertising as the bell goes off and this to signal another customer. And Curtain. This issue was actually a lot of fun. The, the Prankster is one of Superman's main rogues gallery, and it's nice when Uncle Oswald gets some good use. Now, the Prankster first appeared back in Action Comics number 51, cover dated August 1942. And he considered himself to be the funniest man in the world and spoke in a very dramatic manner manner almost like thor you know i verily etc and his shtick it was and is still is crimes that involve elaborate sometimes high-tech pranks and while prankster's early schemes were a little more on the side of robbery and theft he eventually took a lot of delight in making superman look like an idiot and nicknames for the prankster included the chuckling charlton and the rollicking rogue and one major appearance was in the close of the Silver and Bronze Age in Alan Moore's Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow, in which Prankster and Toy Man, which are often confused by fandom, learn Superman's secret identity by torturing and killing Pete Ross. That's just a warm fuzzy right there. And in the post-crisis on Infinite Earth's continuity, Oswald was the host of a children's television program, which was canceled due to low ratings, sending Loomis on a rampage of dangerous pranks and bringing him into conflict with Superman. And Prankster is indeed put to good use here, having found a niche in the city's underworld as a distraction for Superman for hire. The movable trapdoor on page one is funny, and the decoy is pure genius. Oswald's bedroom is quite stately on page two, but I can't help but laugh at the fact that the Prankster was expecting salt for sugar from his assistant Marjorie, to which she responds to that her health insurance can't handle the retaliation. He's not quite as vicious as the Joker, but definitely has a sharp sense of humor. And Nitro G makes his first and only appearance on page four, and it's he's actually just an offensive stereotype. Nitro G's dialogue is awkward. It's His power is kind of lame, but that could be overlooked since he's kind of a stock character. And Nitro G just, he talks in a very thick, urban dialect that's so over the top, it really comes off as cliche. It's like... Somebody told an offensive joke in the crowd of people, and you're not sure whether to laugh politely or call them out on the bad taste they employed. And Oswald himself makes a point of Nitro G's unsavory tactics on page 12. He just thinks that Nitro G's nonstop string of profanities he yells at hostages is the result of those young kids watching Tarantino films. But let's jump back a little bit, back to page 6, where Prankster's command center, it actually reflects his old-school vaudevillian roots while still being technologically way above the grade. 
Uh, in there are actually posters on the wall of old acts like Blevo and Zomdish and Marco, along with Uncle Oswald's own show, Fun with Uncle Oswald. And page eight, Oswald's employment of banana peels is actually quite genius. And one of my favorite aspects, he employs some very tactical thoughts into his pranks, placing each and every detail just right, even his, his escape plan. And page 17 actually shows that mind at work, kind of trying to figure out how to deal with Nitro G's threat. And this is actually the best single page of the issue in terms of storytelling. Oswald confronts himself in just a few panels, looking at the poster of his fun with Uncle Oswald show and really examining where the line needs to be drawn for himself. And of course, he double-crosses Nitro G, and we actually really see that Prankster, in his own odd way, has a sense of integrity. And this is not above making a bunk, a buck, pardon me, but it's on his set terms, not as a weaponer. And that's the heart of the issue. That's why I like it so much, is the Prankster has this moment to prove that, yes, he is a criminal, and he is deranged, but he actually has a very clear-cut sense of what that means to him. The Prankster may be a fun character, and he's certainly a blast in this issue, just like in Superman 651, but there's a bit of pathos to him here, and above all, you know, he's an entertainer who happens to break the law to get his audience. And this story was a good breather from the angst and despair of Camelot Falls, but the 800-pound gorilla in the room is still the racially insensitive Nitro G, who is so over the top. And the art in the issue has very few really shining moments in terms of storytelling. It gets the job done, but it doesn't drop the jaw. I mean, there's the great facial expression on page 17 as Oswald ponders Nitro G's offer, but most of the art shines in character work, such as Nitro G's gang. The coloring is really uneven. The palette ranges from page to page. It gives a feeling of inconsistency throughout the book, but it's not so glaring that you get very distracted from the story. It definitely gets the art done, just not any really glaring inadequacy. So the final verdict on Superman 660 is it's a pretty good prankster story, weighed down a, a little by a weak side character and the art that gets the job done but doesn't wow you. And I still give it three S-Shields out of five just for pure enjoyment of Uncle Oswald. And finally this week, we have Superman Confidential number three, which is Kryptonite part three. And this is by Darwin Cook and Tim Sale with Dave Stewart on colors, Richard Starkings on letters, edited by Mike Chiarello and assistant editor Tom Palmer Jr. The issue starts by jumping back 15 years, where we once again follow the story of the meteor, which came to Earth from Krypton, which has learned to experience the people around it almost in a psychic uh, connection kind of way. And after being stolen from the Buddhist monastery last issue, its new owner, the man with the scar on the eye, brings it to his home where the meteor witnesses the atrocities of this man, including executing priests and peasants. But before the old you know, man's own wife shoots him in the head, and then she in turn is shot and killed by their son. And with no further explanation, unless you're looking at the issue and you can put it together, we pick up where we left off last issue with Superman having just returned from a bad experience with the volcano to find Lois getting out of Anthony Gallo's car. A little late for their date, and Superman actually feels jealous, but Lois points out that, you know, she's been stood up multiple times in the last few weeks by him, and Lois explains that Superman can't expect somebody to be committed to being there all the time for him without being able to return the favor. And honestly, Lois pretty much dumps Superman, uh, citing that, you know, he belongs to the world and not her. Meanwhile, entering the story for the first time, Lex Luthor takes a meeting with King from the Royal Flush game who we saw back in issue number one, 
where it's revealed that Luther actually employed them to test Superman's metal. And they found that the extreme cold of that nitro truck doesn't affect him, but there is a look of fear on the videos. So it's his his concern for the welfare of the others around him, even the villains, that can be exploited as a weakness. And Superman himself is in the Arctic mountains, having a long heart-to-heart about his feelings with a polar bear. And Lois, however, watches as Lex Luthor gives a speech at a sick kid's fun day, but is disappointed to receive a card from Anthony Gallo breaking their date, but saying at the right time, would you introduce this to the crowd? The right time arrives, along with Superman, who swoops in with a giant cake, and Lois passes the card on to him. And the card actually holds a special special message from Anthony Gallo, who has pledged $42 million to build a new wing of the children's hospital on the grounds that Superman come and accept it personally. And just as the Superman's giving this speech, Jimmy calls Lois to say that Gallo and his men are moving. They're knocking over LexCorp payroll trucks, which Superman overhears with his, of course, super hearing, and flies into action. And at that moment, Gallo himself stands naked in his office, bathed by a green glow from behind a door, and tells the secretary no calls. And ironically, Superman experiences the same green glow as he approaches the one of the payroll trucks, except this green glow seems to rob the Man of Steel of his powers, and he plummets towards the ground where the issue ends. And this issue fixes some of the pacing problems we've seen with the last two issues. It's actually fairly well rounded out for a single issue, and we actually get an appearance by Luthor to boot. So Gallo continues to get creepy, while the relationship of Superman and Lois see some strife here. And the idea of Superman being chummy with a polo bear has some charm to it, since Superman should do what we do on a much bigger scale. Now, Superman being jealous would annoy me, but keep in mind the story is set in the early days of Superman's career. He's a much younger version of the Man of Steel, who really hasn't quite gotten that solid feel for Lois yet. That trust and understanding is not completely there. Now, the art continues to astound, and there is some callback to Superman for all seasons in the design, but clearly it's a more streamlined Superman in a sharper, more vivacious Lois, in a much, and I don't mean this, as, I mean this as a compliment, not as a crit, crit, uh, criticism, but a cartoony Jimmy, which actually looks great here. And this issue gets a, a, a nice save for being the beginning of the second act, and kind of feeling relatively complete in itself as far as uh, a single issue. So I'm going to give this three S shields out of five. And let's have uh, another promo, and we'll come back and talk a little bit of Superman movie news. Rocketed as a baby from the exploding planet Krypton, Kal-El grew to manhood on Earth, whose yellow sun and lighter gravity gave him fantastic superpowers. In the city of Metropolis, he poses as TV newsman Clark Kent, but battles evil all over Earth and beyond as Superman. Superman in the Bronze Age is a weekly podcast following the adventures of Superman from 1970 to the Burn reboot in 1986. Follow along at supermaninthebronzeage.blogspot.com. Okay, and there has been a lot of movement in terms of the of the Superman reboot movie uh, as far as Zack Snyder actually talking. Obviously, we had the casting of Kevin Costner as Jonathan Kent, which... Uh, it wouldn't have been my first choice, but the more I thought about it, the more I'm like, that's not bad casting. And it once again, kind of like Diane Lane, it's out of the box enough where it gives me some 
better expectation of the movie. Zack Snyder's really put a lot of thought into it. And as I've said time and time again, if you look at Watchmen, you look at 300, those were loyal to the subject matter, almost to a fault in Watchmen's case, because that's a, that's a book that's, you know, a lot of talking heads. And he translated that, while not 110% exactly, he got the book on the screen. So his casting is is pretty impeccable. And I, all I have to do is point at Jackie Earl Haley as Rorschach. I mean, the guy knows how to cast a movie. So I to look back on Kevin Costner's career and I think about Field of Dreams, Bull Durham, and uh, Tin Cup. And I kind of see a little bit of Pa Kent. And uh, I think with some good directing, actually, you have to pull a good performance out of Costner sometimes. But with that in mind, I think that's a, a, an inspired casting choice. So far, the casting has gotten me very encouraged for the movie. But what Zack Snyder has been telling us is the movie's going to shoot in late August. And it's going to be a much more action-oriented movie. And he's hinted that there's there will be another character that people may call Superman, which some people have drawn out to think it's Bizarro or... You know, try to speculate. I'm not going to try to speculate. I'm just going to wait and see at this point because every time I've speculated quietly or on the show, it's turned out to go the other direction. He's he's pulled out some surprising cards, and that's in a good way. But I think his mentality is he he was quoted as saying, you know, we have Iron Man movies, we have a Thor movie, but and I'm paraphrasing here, but we don't have a Superman movie. It's like if you're making a movie about the Greek gods or the Roman gods. And you've got a Hermes movie or Mercury movie and you don't have a movie about Zeus because he's so awesome and Superman's broken and he needs to be fixed. I disagree with that. Superman's not broken. The franchise is broken and certainly it does need a reboot because not because the Christopher Reeve, Richard Donner movies were in any way bad. In fact, the first two were so phenomenal. But at this point, we're a generation removed and the time to reboot it would have been around Superman Returns. But at this point, yeah, we need some new blood. I'm totally fine with that. I'm good with the direction the movie's heading. And he has confirmed that Viggo Mortensen will not be in the movie, which is a, you know, not not a good or a bad thing. I love Viggo Mortensen, and we still don't know who the villain is. One more bit of rumor is that Edgar Ramirez, who you may have seen in Domino, is in contention for a villain role, as well as Michael Shannon, who is currently on Showtime, or HBO's Boardwalk Empire. I honestly can't tell what villain they're casting, if that's the truth. Uh, if you look at Mortensen and Ramirez and, and Shannon, all put up together, they definitely, all three men have very striking features, very sharp features. So visually, while they're not completely similar, they do have visual tropes that are very, you know, very similar. But the, the the movie's heading in a great direction. Zack Snyder's starting to talk about it a lot more now that Sucker punches out. And he's doing the promotional for that. And obviously he's going to get asked about this movie. This is his big one. Although he has been kind of flimsy as far as the release date, which Warner Brothers set for December of 2012. But right now he's not being very committal. But I, um, right now, I mean, the studio has a great way of sitting on directors Especially, so I, I would expect that the December 2012 release date is pretty solid. And he did confirm also that the movie will probably be called Man of Steel. Of course, that's subject to change, just like any movie. 
So with the speed of, of the updates I've been getting this week, there's just so many of them because Zack Snyder's talking so much. So I'm looking forward to being able to do those smaller news segments to kind of touch on that when it's timely. But uh, I did have one more thing before I let you all go, let you all off the hook for this week. And that was a voicemail. It seems Darkseid has been calling Steve Rogers quite a bit, not Captain America, but Stephen J. Rogers. And leaving voicemails thinking it's for me. So Steve has been kind enough to forward these voicemails, and I'm going to go ahead and let Darkseid speak for himself. J. David Weeder, it came to my attention that Charlie Sheen has been selling out all across America in a tour featuring his comedy. It is now time for me to unleash my truth. Yes, that is right. The Dark Side Over America Tour. First, I will have a performance of the entire Dark Side. Get it? Get it? Dark Side. Dark Side. Okay. Of the moon. And yes, I will be singing all of the Pink Floyd classics. But with the added entertainment of Wizard of Oz playing on a screen behind me. And I've heard it matches up perfectly. Of course, Calabac is the one that told me this, so take that for what it's worth. Then, just because I have heard escape artists are so popular these days, I'll bring Mr. Miracle out to do whatever it is Shiloh wants to do. I mean, he keeps ragging on the Jesse Jameses and Chris Angels of the world, and quite frankly, I just don't see it. And because I've heard strip shows are pretty popular, the Furies will be doing routines from cages throughout the night. Don't tell anyone yet, especially Kellel. But I may be able to get his cousin to make special appearances. Well, what do you think? The Dark Side Over America tour. I do need a tour manager, though. So you heard it here first, folks. Dark Side is touring. Uh, he didn't forward me any information on where to purchase tickets or what venues he's at. So I appreciate Steve Rogers forwarding that to us, since Darkseid seems to have some dialing issues. And one final note, let's talk about Amer uh, small uh, Metropolis Idol. We are now in the final round, and this has been kind of an odd ride, and I apologize for that. But at this point, we are down to the last two. One of these two will be your Metropolis Idol. And currently, as it stands, with 77% of the vote... Dean Kane will be taking on George Reeves, who walked away with 88% of the vote. So it is mano a mano. It is the last round. You get to choose the, the next Metropolis Idol. And the voting is up as we speak at supermanforever.com right there in the sidebar. And please step out and vote. Choose your Metropolis Idol. And if you have any anything to add on these two, uh, go ahead and email me at mail at supermanforever.com. Kind of give me your take on why you do or don't like these two. This is your show as well, so let me know. And uh, voting will be open. Voting will be open through April 6th. And on April 10th of 2011, on that Sunday, we will announce the Metropolis Idol that you have chosen. So George Reeves or Dean Kane, who's it going to be? And all in all, you get to decide. And so that wraps up this episode. Remember, next week uh, we're going to do the first full topic episode. And then that following Thursday, we will do the first full review episode. So April 3rd, next Sunday, remember to come back here for that topic. And then return again on April 7th. And of course, as I mentioned, I'll have more information as far as the separate feed 
for the news uh, news breaks. So I want to thank everybody again for, for joining me on Superman Forever Radio. I do appreciate it. And you can always find it at on iTunes or also on at www.supermanforever.com. And, of course, at the Superman Podcast Network, which you can find at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. And you can follow the show on Twitter. Uh, you can find me. I am at Superman Forever. That's Superman the number four ever. And, of course, on Facebook, just do a search for supermanforever.com. And, of course, I am currently on Tumblr as well. That's supermanforever.tumblr.com. Your emails are always welcome. There, You can uh, drop me a line at super, mail at supermanforever.com. And, of course, there is the call-in line. And, overall, I, just, I still appreciate you guys listening. I appreciate your patience. And, as I mentioned, this will be the last... Uh, unplanned late episode i know in june the first weekend uh, with metropolis illinois superman celebration going on not only those two episodes going to be dedicated to the metropolis experience um there's going to there will probably be a a slight delay but that's a little bit different and we'll have more details as it goes because there's going to be editing going on it's going to be a lot for those four days so i appreciate you one more time i just appreciate you listening and Go out there, and until next time, keep fighting the never-ending battle. Superman and all related characters, the distinctive likenesses thereof, and related elements are trademark of DC Comics, Warner Brothers Entertainment Company. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not gain profit from the images or related properties belonging to DC Comics or Warner Brothers Entertainment. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster.